Judge, thank you very much. And uh, we know the duration of the trip makes it a special sacrifice for you to be here. And we certainly appreciate you, your family, and friends who are in attendance for making that sacrifice. I'm going to start the round of questioning, five minutes for each member. Uh, Ms. Hill, most uh, members of Congress who have tribal representation in their states understand this whole issue of tribal sovereignty and the fact that you could have served as Attorney General for the Cherokee Nation. Could you summarize in a few sentences uh, the difference or the challenge that you faced with that responsibility? And serving as Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation, um, you know, is post McGirt especially has been very. It's been very challenging. There's been a great increase in the number of criminal cases that are being heard. Tribal Indian tribes have jurisdiction over crimes committed by Indians um, across their Indian country. So throughout the reservation of the Cherokee Nation, the Cherokee Nation has jurisdiction, and the Office of the Attorney General is responsible for prosecuting those. So as the Attorney General, um, it has been the responsibility post-Maker to scale up that office in a way that uh, so we were able to handle all the different cases that, that came to us. And I think that, you know, that's something that for people who have Indian country in their districts are probably more familiar with that process and may not be that familiar to other people. So your responsibility as district court judge uh, is separate and apart from the Cherokee Nation. Certainly. A district court judge um, for the United States is... Uh, entirely different job than the job of an advocate. As Attorney General, of course, I was an advocate for the tribe's legal position and for its rights. Like all attorneys, I would advocate on behalf of my client with every all the intellect and um, all of the strategic thought I could put into it on behalf of the nation. For a federal district judge, uh, the, it's an entirely different job. The job is to look at all the cases that come before you um, impartially, um, and fairly, and looking at everything on their own terms, and, and then applying the facts to the law, and it's a much different role entirely. Thank you very much. Judge Manglonia, I want to pronounce your name correctly. Is it Manglonia? Manglonia, yes, but uh, Manglonia. Close now. Uh, you had a range of experience as a litigator and a jurist and spent your legal career in the Northern Mariana Islands, including a previous appointment to the bench which, to which you've been renominated. I want to make a note of this fact, that after the island was hit with uh, devastating typhoons in 2015 and 2018, you kept the courthouse open to ensure the crucial work of the judiciary would not be interrupted. Your judicial chambers were awarded the 2019 Director's Award for Extraordinary Action from the Administrative Office of the U.S. Court. How have your experiences equipped you to continue serving that unique need in the Northern Marianas? Senator, uh, the, two the two super typhoons that hit Saipan with the distance to receiving the help was truly challenging. I was very grateful for the support from the administrative office as well as my neighboring district in, uh, in Guam, as I mentioned. The experience that I've uh, gone through made me stronger in regards to being creative in how to deal with challenges, and I actually... Um, from our initial experience in 2015, some of the other districts that then suffered other natural disasters in other uh, parts of the country were able to avail of some of the lessons that we learned. And I believe all this experience is going to ensure that should there be another disaster or uh, calamity, I will be so well prepared to maintain or keep the courthouse doors open to ensure that 
people's constitutional rights are still uh, addressed. Well, congratulations to you on that effort. Thank you. Mr. Russell, while reviewing your record, I notice you've been representing U.S. purchasers in a putative class action against the manufacturer of a breast cancer drug called Herceptin. The plaintiffs in the suit contend the company falsely labeled vials of the drug so that the purchasers regularly received less of the active ingredient than they thought they were receiving. Can you tell us about your work in the case and what specific claims the class is raising? Senator, the, the, the plaintiffs in that case, it's a putative class action. It's also a multi-district litigation case. And the, the claims are uh, breach of warranty, fraud. There are several different claims relating to the lack of Herceptin that is showing up in, in the vials over a, a historical period of time. And so the claims are that uh, there were the doctor's offices having to administer the Herceptin were required to open additional vials at cost and loss in each time that they administered Herceptin to a breast cancer patient. I'm a little familiar with that issue because we've had the opposite be the case as well, that drugs are put in uh, containers far greater than necessary for the ordinary dosage and many of these very expensive drugs end up being surplus and thrown away. So labeling and, and handling and, and bottling is a critical element in making sure that the American consumer is treated fairly. Thank you very much. Senator Graham. Uh, thank you, yes. Uh, Ms. Hill, uh, I think the committee received a letter from the United uh, UKB. How do you say the, the K? Katua. Okay. Um, Question your impartiality and your ability to serve. What would you say? I would say, um, you know, certainly there's been a fair amount of litigation between the Cherokee Nation and the United Katua Band. Um, and in that litigation, I represented my client to the best of my ability, which is my job and duty. Um, certainly taking on the role of the federal district judge is one that leaves behind the life of advocacy and embraces the, jo the job and the life of a jurist, one who takes the case what's before them and looks at them fairly impartially and applies to a lot of the facts. And I, I understand very much that that's the job of the district judge and not to serve as an advocate. Okay. Are you familiar with a called a corrupt bargain, the allegation of a corrupt bargain between the Cherokee Federal and HHS concerning construction of a migrant detention center? Are you familiar with that? I'm not. I'm, okay. I'm familiar with the attempt to construct a uh, migrant facility that... But you had nothing to do with it. No, that was done by Cherokee Nation businesses. Okay, as an advocate for the Cherokee Nation, uh, obviously you, you have to represent your client with vigor, and I think that's what all lawyers do. Um, the two senators speak very well of you. Uh, when it comes to the Dakota pipeline, can you tell me your position regarding that? So when the Dakota Access Pipeline was, uh, the, the dispute in Indian Country arose with the Standing Rock Reservation, I was the Secretary of Natural Resources for the Cherokee Nation. The legislature, the elected leaders of the Cherokee Nation passed um, resolutions in support of the Standing Rock Tribe. And so as part of a delegation of the Cherokee Nation, um, you know, I participated in activities regarding that, that pipeline. Okay, uh, in terms of... Uh do you have any particular bias against the fossil fuel industry? I do not. I've, I've worked, I think my record reflects that I've worked also with fossil fuel companies. Um, when they are putting in uh, infrastructure, things like pipelines, one of the things they have to deal with is uh, trying to make sure they don't affect 
the various sites where there might be tribal interests. And so working directly with uh, those pipeline companies to make sure that they're sited properly um, and in compliance with the law is something that I've also done. So I've worked uh, with, with companies that are also involved in fossil fuels. I, I do not believe I have any bias against them, and I think my record would reflect that. Uh, Ma'am, how do you say your last name again? Manglonia. Uh, how long does it take to get from Saipan to here? 24 hours, one way, door to door. <laughs> you said that very certain. That's a <laughs> I've done it many uh, times. <laughs> so you also have uh, cases in Guam, is that right? Yes, I see by designation. Is there anything the committee can do to like make your job easier? Um, confirm me? <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> I just assumed you had the job, so yeah, let me not jump over that part. Seemed to be yeah. well qualified. Everybody listening back in Zipan, she's doing good. Yes. So, I mean, how do you really, I mean, how long does it take you to get to Guam? Uh, well, Guam, Saipan and Guam are in the same archipelago, so I just fly down. It's about a 30-minute flight. Unfortunately, airline is the only way. Boat is yeah. by days. Um, and so we're in the same time zone. It makes it easier. Uh, there were the days when we would have three to five flights in a day. Nowadays, it's very restricted, so it, it does constrain, but thank goodness for modern technology. Um, I in 2021, I presided over a seven-week trial where I was doing the trial in Guam and then handling my cases virtually uh, in Saipan so I can move things along. Okay. Thank you much. Senator Rono. Mr. Chairman, congratulations to each of you. I um, asked the following two foundational questions of uh, nominees to uh, uh, for any of the committees on which I sit. So uh, I'll start with Ms. Hill and go right down the line. Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? No, Senator. No, Senator. No, Senator. Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? No, Senator. No, Senator. No, Senator. Ms. Hill, you, you have a long career working for the Cherokee Nation, most recently as Attorney General, so I think that you will bring a, a unique perspective to the federal bench. How has your experience working for the Cherokee Nation prepared you for an appointment to the federal bench? One of the good things about working for the Cherokee Nation, one of the things I have most enjoyed was the opportunity to work um, with lots of different types of people, working with state leaders on issues of common concern, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District to prosecute crime in Indian Country. Um, so I've had an opportunity to work with lots of different types of individuals uh, while, working the Cher while working for the Cherokee Nation. It is the largest federally recognized Indian tribe, and has a, we have a very large reservation. So it's created lots of opportunities for me to learn to work with different people and to learn the, the state very well, um, and to learn the law of lots of different topics, from uh, laying pipelines and fossil fuels right up to cr criminal jurisdictional uh, matters in, in Indian country. So it's given me a, bre a breadth of experience I, that I think is going to be useful to a district judge in the Northern District of Oklahoma. I agree with you, and if confirmed, uh, you'll be the first Native American woman to serve as a federal judge in Oklahoma. And uh, this committee has had a hearing in, in which um, uh, we are, I think, sending to the floor. I hope, yes, we are. The first uh, Native Hawaiian woman 
to uh, sit on the federal bench. So I think it's very important that we have judges who have the kind of perspective that, that uh, has to do with uh, native, our native people. So you know, I certainly um, look forward to supporting you. Again, for you, in, uh, I'm sorry, McGirt v. Oklahoma, the Supreme Court held that the state of Oklahoma lacked jurisdiction to prosecute Native Americans for crimes committed on tribal land. Can you tell the committee briefly about the process of setting up the Cherokee Nation's criminal division following that Supreme Court decision? When that case was decided, uh, the Cherokee Nation's criminal docket was pretty uneventful. We typically had about 100 cases a year that we would hear because most of the more serious crimes were tried by the Northern District or the Eastern District. Post-McGirt, uh, that completely changed. The, the, ju the jurisdictional rules applied throughout the reservation. So we had, I think, around 3,700 matters, criminal and tra traffic matters, filed that first year post-McGirt. So I had to go from one criminal prosecutor to nine full-time criminal prosecutors. And that sort of ramping up included support staff, investigators, all of those things uh, that were required. So that process of um, you know, building that up very quickly was something that I had to oversee as attorney general. And it was, a, uh, it was, it was quite the effort. Um, but it was, you know, that's what the law required. The nation's jurisdiction was larger than had previously been, had been understood until the opinion in McGirt v. Oklahoma. Thank you. Judge Magnolia. Uh, since 2011, you have served as the sole active federal uh, district court judge in the Northern Mariana Islands, and as such, you perform the work of a chief judge, a magistrate judge, and a bankruptcy judge. You wear many hats. Can you tell us about the unique experience of being not only the chief judge, but also the only federal judge in a district, and how has this experience informed your judicial approach? Senator, it's been... Um a wonderful uh, challenge to be able to do all three areas of law. I'll, I'll be candid, uh, the bankruptcy docket is not very vibrant right now, but um, there were instances where we'd have to do some uh, novel issues. And as I mentioned, I also sit in as by designation in Guam. So I assist in that district and that's where I've also had additional experience even privilegizing over bankruptcy cases. Um, given the broad uh, general jurisdiction experience that I had in the trial court for eight years, I think it really prepared me to be able to do everything from beginning to end as magistrate judges for criminal or civil matters of um, criminal from warrants all the way to sentencing as a district judge. So I had that full uh, experience and I, I enjoyed the full panoply um, and I am so rewarded when I also work with other district judges from either my neighboring uh, district in Guam or elsewhere, including Hawaii. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And while I didn't have a question for you, Mr. Russell, I look forward to supporting you also. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator. Senator Thank Grassley. You. Yeah. Ms. Hill, I'm going to start with you. Uh, the four years uh, you were for four years until recently Attorney General, as uh, we all know now. Uh, the Cherokee Nation uh, has made contracts with the federal government for services related to unaccompanied alien children through tribally owned entities like Cherokee Federal. Uh, and this is an issue because 85,000 
uh, children have been lost track of by this administration. According to Cherokee Nation law, one of the Attorney General's duties is to prepare drafts of, quote, contracts and other instruments in which the Cherokee Nation government is interested. So for you, do you agree that the Cherokee Nation government would have had an interest according to the interest as according to that law in the multi-million dollar contract entered into between the U.S. government and the Cherokee Federal, a tribally owned company? I mean, the, the Cherokee Nation would have had the interest of a shareholder in, in, the, in Cherokee Federal, which is a business arm that's operated by the, by the nation. So it's, it would have an, an interest, has a, an interest in the company, certainly. It's the owner of that company, but that company is operated separately from the government. So it has its own attorneys. It has its own infrastructure. So, you, so you're saying that uh, where the, your law requires you in your duties as attorney general to prepare drafts, you're saying you would not been involved in preparing any of those drafts? That's correct. Okay. Uh, as Attorney General, well, maybe you've answered this last question. Let me ask and then come to the conclusion if you've answered it or not. Uh, what was your or your office's role with respect to these contracts entered into between Cherokee Federal and the federal government related to unaccompanied children's services. Uh, did you approve them? Did you observe them? And I think you just told me you had nothing to do with these contracts. I did not have anything to do with those contracts. Okay. Uh, this next question is, you may have the same answer, but it goes at a little different direction because maybe as Attorney General you'd hear about any problems. Did you or your office receive any complaints related to Cherokee Federals or any other entity handling unaccompanied alien children? And if so, what kind of complaints did you receive and how did you handle them? I do not recall receiving any complaints about Cherokee Federal. The, the facility that, as I understand it, the facility that Cherokee Federal operated was in California. Uh, it, was not, it was not a local facility, and I, so it wasn't on the reservation. It wasn't within the jurisdiction of the Cherokee Nation, and I don't recall ever receiving any complaints about it. I do recall there being a bit of controversy about it, but I, it was not as if I had a formal request for review or anything like that on my desk that I can recall, Senator. Okay. If there's anything you can supply to us about these complaints you heard, uh, just hear them, not being in, involved with them, I'd like that information. You don't need to give it to me now, but you could give it to me in writing. For uh, all of you, um, a very general question, but do you believe that a judge should ever consider his or her own values or policy preferences when determining what the law means or what the case's outcome should be? And if so, under what circumstances? I'll start with you, Ms. Hill. I, I don't believe that the, the personal values or personal uh, you know, policy preferences of the judge should affect the outcome. Uh, you know, the laws are written by Congress. The, 
the judge, judges should look at what the law is. They should look at what the precedent is in the circuit that we serve in. Um, but I don't think that overlaying your opinion about those things is appropriate. If it's diddle for you, you can just say that, Mr. Russell. The same. Personal values are not important. It's uh, the rule of law. And you, Ms. Magonia. I agree with my uh, co-panelists. Okay. Uh, Maybe I will quit. I'll put the rest in for writing. Thank you, Senator Grassley. Senator Kennedy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to each of you. Um, Ms. Hill, what is collateral estoppel? Collateral estoppel. <clears throat> um, I think collateral estoppel... Um, well, Senator, I will say that my practice, my 20 years of practice has primarily been dealing with issues relating to um, criminal law or relating to other areas of the law. Yes, and if you don't know, just tell me. I, I, I certainly do know collateral estoppel. I'm okay. finding that the bright lights of the what, moment are um, what, making what it hard is, for me to recall it. Okay. So you don't recall it. Okay. Um, what is the amount in controversy requirement? The amount in controversy requirement is $75,000. It typically governs, um, in many cases, almost any case in diversity jurisdiction in the federal courts. Okay. Uh, and in certain That's other... Uh, what's, what does the uh, 13th Amendment to the Constitution do? It outlaws slavery. What does the uh, 7th Amendment do? It ensures that all um, civil jury trials all civil cases in the United States are, are done by jury trial. They have a right to a jury trial in a civil case. Okay. What is the difference between a stay order and an injunction? A stay, a stay order would prohibit... Um, sorry. An, an injunction would re restrain the parties from taking action. A stay order... I'm not sure that I actually can, can give you the... Okay. That. Tell me about, you'll see a lot of this in federal court, tell me about the multi-district litigation statute. So I'm not extremely familiar with the multi-district litigation. I do know that multi-district litigation is often consolidated into um, a particular court. So all of the cases involving a particular type of um, issue, if there is a multi-district litigation, those will all be referred to one court and one judge who will then oversee the MDL. But I will confess I'm not uh, super familiar with all the ins and outs of that. Okay. What, what kind of constitutional claims are subject to uh, intermediate judicial scrutiny? Cases involving certain types of classes, such as gender or illegitimacy, are subject to intermediate scrutiny. Some types of speech, like commercial speech, would be subject to intermediate scrutiny. Okay. Tell me what a, a 12B6 motion is. It's a motion to dismiss a claim, or I mean a motion to dismiss an issue for failure to state a claim. Okay. And what's the standard for granting a summary judgment in federal court? It says there are no issues of material fact, and that the issue can therefore be decided as a matter of law. Okay. Um, What's the standard for deciding whether a particular punishment is cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment? 
So the particular standard the court has said, and I cannot recall the case, but it says that you have to look at um, not only whether it is uh, would be shocking to an to the individuals at the time that it was written. So it's not purely a historical review, as some of the some of them are purely historical, but also you have to look at how it has changed, how those values have changed with time. It's one of the one of those cases, circumstances where the court says it's appropriate to look at how values have changed with okay. time. Well, uh, our right against cruel and unusual punishment is a fundamental right, is it not? It is. Okay. How do you square what you just told me about the Eighth Amendment uh, with with the case after case after case by by the U.S. Supreme Court that says a um, the definition of a fundamental right is one that's explicitly stated in the Constitution or deeply rooted in our history and tradition? Yeah, I, th I think that it is. I think it is deeply rooted in our history and tradition. The yeah, but certain forms of of uh, punishment are not. If a if a form of punishment it existed um, at the time of our founding, and it's deeply rooted in our history and tradition, you telling me that makes it automatically constitutional today? I thought you just told no. Me. I'm certainly not saying that. The Supreme. I'm not. What I say is about it is really quite irrelevant, but the Supreme Court has said we look at it with, with a view to the changing values yeah, on these why issues. why the difference? I thought, well, I, both I, fundamental rights, why the difference? Yeah, I think that's a question that the Supreme Court's going to have to answer, whether or not they, they well, have... I think it has. I'm just asking if you know. I, I think I've answered the question to the best of my ability, Senator. Okay. Thank you all. Senator Hawley, going to return? No. Uh, I, th I think that all the senators uh, have appeared who are going to question today. Uh, Ms. Hill, I congratulate you on surviving the John Kennedy six-minute bar exam. My contracts teacher is going to be appalled, and uh, I'm going to have to live with that, Senator, but thank you. Chair, thank you. <laughs> if you promise to spare Ms. Hill, I'll... <laughs> um, did, did the White House give any of you any written materials to use to prepare? They gave... Or digital materials? They, they gave us, um, you know, questions, previous questions that had been asked by the and, panel. And answers? Um, I think we had to go find the answers ourselves. I think we had to go watch okay. the various committees. May I have a copy of that? Um, I don't have one, but I'm sure that... It's just, it is literally just a, a list of questions. I don't have a copy. I, I, don't, have, I don't have any of copy. Would you send me a copy? I'm easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> Would you send me a copy, Michelle? I will. Okay. Would you each send me a yeah. copy? So yes, I Senator. can compare and make sure they're all the same. Okay. Thank you. Senator, can we have a copy of your list of questions uh, to share with the sure. other members? I'll even give you the answer. It's like a bar. <laughs> it's like a bar review course. Yes. Senator Lee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of you for being here. Ms. Hill, I'd like to start with you, if that's all right. As you know, in 2020, in the McGirt case, um, the Supreme Court held that in unique circumstances, major crimes committed in Indian country can be prosecuted only by tribal or federal courts. Uh, the, the, this ruling removed the state's ability to prosecute uh, those crimes in those circumstances. 
Now, you strongly support the McGirt decision, and uh, it's important to keep in, in mind that in, um, in Oklahoma versus Castro Huertas in 2022, the Supreme Court clarified that states retain the authority to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against others, even if those crimes take place in Indian country. Now, in um, one of your many critiques of that decision, you called uh, Castro Huertas, quote, a, a very negative decision. And uh, you said that, uh, quote, Kavanaugh's opinion, which of course was the, the opinion of the court, um, Kavanaugh's opinion, it was terrible. To justify that critique, uh, you, you, you came up with a hypothetical, a hypothetical in which you stated that, quote, a non-Indian steals a car from an Indian, and that person can be prosecuted by the state. That person can also be prosecuted by the United States. They can be convicted twice for the same act and serve two sentences. That was part of your critique. My concern is that your critique here demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of how the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment works. I think most first-year law students can tell you that double jeopardy prevents separate prosecutions for the same offense when those prosecutions are brought by the same sovereign. A non-Indian who steals a car from a non-Indian, for example, in Utah, is properly subject to prosecution uh, by both state and uh, federal authorities, by the state government and by the federal government, because they are separate sovereigns in, in our system, uh, just as in any other state in the United States. State governments are unique. Uh, they are uh, unique independent sovereigns separate and apart from the federal government. And the federal government is a completely different sovereign. This has been a, a line of authority. This has been a principle that's been clearly established uh, ever since our nation's inception, certainly ever since we adopted the Double Jeopardy Clause in 1791 as part of our Constitution. So yes, McGirt represents, uh, uh, presents a, a, a unique set of circumstances, an Indian committing a crime against an Indian in Indian country. But nothing in the Constitution prevents a state from prosecuting a non-Indian for their crimes, regardless of who the victim is. Though, in, in your view, do you disagree with, uh, with the characterization of double jeopardy as I've just stated it? Do you disagree that the state's are separate sovereigns from the federal government for purposes of, of the Double Jeopardy Clause? I certainly don't disagree with that. Um, and, and if confirmed, would you follow the, the majority opinion in Oklahoma v. Castro Huertas? I absolutely would. And given the practice that I've had, I've, I've been following it for some time. Your, your, your apparent desire to remove the state's authority to prosecute non-Indian offenders would, in my view, only weaken law enforcement's ability to remove violent offenders from the streets. And it's, a, it's, it's dangerous to place loyalty to any particular group over your loyalty to long-established principles of law or of, of the Constitution. So when, am I misreading your statement uh, regarding Castro Huertas or the hypothetical? I think that the, the full context maybe is not really re reflected there, the full context of my comments. I can say, you know, certainly I, on behalf of my client, I was critical of the decision in Castro Huerta because it was a decision that had other ramifications in Indian law outside. Right, but I'm, I'm not talking about the other ramifications. I'm just talking about, the, uh, about double jeopardy here. Right, I, I, I understand that. 
Um, and the, the, but those ramifications, that was the, some of the context of my criticism of it. I certainly believe and understand that I, I'm required to follow, will be required to follow the law if I'm so fortunate as to be uh, confirmed to serve in the Northern District. And I understand the distinctions that, you know, you have, if you have three sovereigns, that all three sovereigns could bring those claims, and there would not be a double jeopardy issue. Okay. Uh, while you were... Uh while serving as Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation, did you state that you have, had no intent to enforce the law post-Dobbs? I never said that. Um, did you at any point say, I expect, and I think everyone expects, massive constitutional challenges to that law, just for your awareness, referring to those laws? I, I was not referring to Dobbs. That was the decision of the court. I was talking about the Oklahoma law that had been passed uh, relating to abortion post the decision in Dobbs and that that law was ch was being challenged, had already been challenged in the courts. There was, it was significantly newsworthy in Oklahoma at the time that the Oklahoma law was being challenged. Challenged post-Dobbs on grounds that you believed uh, were legitimate challenges post-Dobbs? I, I couldn't say that they were legitimate. I just knew that there were likely to be many challenges to it. It was very contentious. Okay. See, my time's expired. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Lee. Senator Tillis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for being here. Uh, uh, Mr. Russell and Ms. Manglona, did I get that right? Uh, I, I intend to support you all's confirmation. Um, and uh, I, even if I was leaning against you, I would have done it uh, after your answer to uh, uh, Senator Graham's question about how, how your job could be made easier. I've been watching the proceedings in my office. Ms. Hill, I've got some questions for you. You, you probably know I'm from North Carolina and I have a history with the Eastern Band of the Cherokee, and up until a couple of years ago, it was pretty positive. I was the speaker that negotiated the, uh, the, uh, the new compact for the Eastern Band uh, that gave rise to live gambling and, and the additional casino that they had there. But we've had a parting of the ways that hopefully sooner or later we get back on track. This week, the Eastern Band are uh, in the middle of the uh, National Congress of American Indians doing their best to disenfranchise state-recognized tribes as either voting members or members of the organization, um, which, of course, is just another example of where they want to shut the door behind their recognition. But I've got some questions uh, I just need to clear up very quickly. On March 12th, the U.S. Department of Interior agreed to put 17 acres in Cleveland County in uh, North Carolina in a trust for the Catawba Nation. On May 1st, 2020, as Attorney General, your team filed a motion to intervene in the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians, uh, United States versus the Department of Interior. Uh, the motion backed the Eastern Band of the Cherokee and claimed that the DOI willfully violated the National Historic Preservation Rights National Environment Policy Act and Administrative Procedure Act. Do you believe the DOI uh, got the uh, decision right or wrong? Um. You know, that case was some time ago. I remember that there was an issue regarding the NHPA and that particular Okay, I will, piece of I'll, uh, I'll let you actually, if you'll submit that uh, answer in writing. Just, that, uh, that would be helpful. I'm straightforward, sorry. Uh, whether or not you think the DOI got it right or wrong. Can I get your commitment that you will recuse yourself from cases involving tribal issues, which you have had a degree of involvement that would create at least the appearance of lacking impartiality? I, mean, I will certainly recuse myself, um, you know, as the, in any circumstance where the rules would indicate I should, including... So it's a maybe. Uh, if it's an appearance thing, it's a maybe. Do you agree that the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, uh, that there should be uh, three congressional delegates? I, I know that you know that UKB and Cherokee, uh, Eastern Band of Cherokee may have differing opinions here. I'm kind of curious about your opinion. Right. I mean, I, I certainly represented on behalf of, of the Cherokee Nation 
that it was the, the treaty holder and that it had a right to have the, the treaty, the, the, the delegate on behalf of the Cherokee Nation. That was the position that I took on, on behalf of the Cherokee Nation. If a case regarding the potential Cherokee delegate to Congress comes before you, would you recuse yourself? Um, I, I think I would recuse myself on that case. Um, do you believe that you should consider other cases regarding Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina impartially, given your background? Uh, should a case go through the courts and be in your jurisdiction related to Lumbee recognition? I can only follow the, the rules of judicial conduct which on any matter that comes before me. And if there was a, a, an issue raised that, that demanded my recusal, I would certainly uh, recuse according to the rules. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to do lightning round here. I'm sorry. No, I, I really hate interrupting people, even when I appear to be hostile. This, this has nothing to do with you, uh, Ms. Hill. It has to do with a profound issue and disagreement that I have with the Eastern Man, the Cherokee. So please... Uh, accept my apologies. There have been reports that the Cherokee Nation has made millions of dollars from immigration contracts to process individuals who enter the United States illegally, specifically unaccompanied children. As the former Attorney General for the Cherokee Nation, were you involved in any of the immigration contract negotiations? I was not. Okay. And in your private PAC practice, I, I believe that they have done some representation on this matter? I have never, I have never been involved you know, in that in any, in any okay. real way. We, we've got a, a couple of, I, you know, it's unfair to hit you in the lightning round and ask you to recall all of that. We will be submitting a question for the record that's very uh, concise with respect to, uh, uh, to the matter and a, and a couple of other things. Mr. Chair, I, I, I'm going to uh, yield back time so uh, Senator Padilla uh, can speak, but I, uh, I did have uh, one document that was the filing. Uh, uh, if I may, I'd like to uh, uh, get, seek unanimous consent to have the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians versus the Department of the Interior uh, case into the record. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Yield back. Senator Padilla. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, welcome to all three nominees. Uh, congratulations on being here today um, and for your willingness to uh, uh, serve. Uh, my first question is a question I ask uh, to every nominee that comes before this committee for the federal bench, and that's a, a two-part question. Number one, do you agree with the following? Uh, I believe one of uh, our country's greatest strengths is our diversity, uh, not just ethnic racial diversity, but uh, the diversity of our economy, the diversity of cultures, the diversity of uh, life experiences and professional experiences that I believe uh, our federal judiciary should represent. Uh, hasn't always, uh, working with President Biden, this committee, uh, we have considered and confirmed a historically diverse group of federal judges at all levels uh, over the last uh, two plus years. Uh, do you agree that diversity is good for uh, the courtroom? Uh, and for the judicial system. And I'm not just talking about diversity on the bench, by the way. Here's the part B of the question. If you agree with that statement, I'd love to hear it. If you disagree, I'd love to hear why. Uh, but if you do agree, then what would you do to work towards more diverse uh, staff in the courtroom, not just on the bench, uh, particularly when it comes to law clerks? Uh, I think you may each be able to speak to uh, your experience as uh, law clerks and what that did to uh, support your career trajectory, whether it's been in public or in private practice. So uh, two-part question, starting with Ms. Hill. 
Um, I certainly, you know, do agree with the value statement that you gave, Senator. Um, and as it relates to the hiring of uh, court personnel, including staff, you know, I was not a clerk, and I will say that growing up in the rural community that I grew up in, and the, I just was not, not didn't have any exposure to this world that clerks, whether I even understood exactly what clerks did or what that pathway looked like. And so I think that a lot of the work that perhaps needs to be done is just giving people that come from uh, rural communities. Um, where you just you don't have lawyers in your life. I didn't grow up in a world where there were lots of lawyers. And so that world was very opaque to me. Even though I wanted to be a lawyer, I wasn't exactly sure how to understand that world. And so I think one of the ways to do that is to reach out into communities where, um, you know, where there are people from rural areas, especially in the communities in the Northern District, and re let people understand those opportunities, make people aware of what clerking is and what it can do for you, and so that people understand the value of it and understand what the pathway is would be one of the things I think would be valuable, and I would you know, want to be able to contribute in some way to helping that happen. Beautifully said, thank you. Mr. Russell. Senator, I, I agree with your with your value statement and believe that diversity is important on the bench as well as in in the, in the staff the chambers of any any judge. For my part, I, like Ms. Hill, I did not clerk, uh, but in the many firms that I have worked at, we have seen the value of clerkships as they as we have had and hired clerks that have come in, and having the diversity is important because we are we are seeing talent coming from all, all different places. And so if I'm fortunate to be confirmed, I would cast as wide of a net as possible to try to get clerks from as many places as possible from diverse backgrounds as well as uh, racial diversity in all types of diversity I think are important so that uh, it's, not, it's never an echo chamber. Thank, Thank you. you. Senator, in my uh, 20 years as a judge, I have um, seen the value of diversity. Speaking from the bench, I think um, it's nice for the community to see that the people who are aware of the all walks of life that are represented are also on the bench. Uh, in the Superior Court that I was sitting at, there were only five trial court judges. Now with one district judge in my district, I am the only one representing. And I think it's um, something that uh, is valuable for the perception of the community. In regards to hiring um, law clerks, for example, I do agree as well for diversity. Um, I've hired from throughout the country. Unfortunately, we don't have a law school in my region, um, and so there aren't much in our district. But the uh, ability to listen and hear different perspectives from, um, I have a law clerk from the East Coast and a law clerk from the West Coast, and having discussions about different issues or, or matters, it's really um, enlightening, and I think that's, one reason why, as a judge, when we keep an open mind and then listen to the different perspectives, it would really keep, make us, um, enable us to make an informed decision. Thank you, thank you. Mr. Chair, if I may, just one follow-up question for Ms. Hill. Uh, as uh, Senator Lankford and Senator Hirono noted, and we all recognize, if confirmed to be the first Native American woman to serve as a federal judge in Oklahoma, where I think the Native population represents more than 10% of the state population. Uh, your resume is clearly impressive. Uh, you are clearly more than qualified for this role, uh, but this is a milestone that many would consider long overdue. Uh, I know a thing or two about being the first, um, but I'd like to hear from you. What would it mean to you 
and the people of Oklahoma if you were to be confirmed to be the first Native American woman on the district court for Oklahoma? Yeah, Oklahoma is such an amazing place. It's, a, it's my home state, and I, I can't say enough great things about it. One of the great things about it, though, is its Native population. Um, it's just brought, brings something to the state that makes it utterly unique, um, and it's very valuable. And I think that having a, such a large Native population in the state, um, you know, it's, I think every, everybody will feel, I certainly feel like, um, you know, having a federal bench that reflects the community that serves it um, is a sign that your, um, your government is thriving, that the community is thriving, um, that things are working well. And so I think that from that point of view, it will be, it will be a, a good thing to see, and it's meaningful to me in that way. It's, it's an opportunity to reflect uh, the community that, that is served by the Northern District, and um, you know, it's an humbling, a very humbling thought to be the first. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator. Uh, at this point, I'm going to adjourn the, today's hearing after making this logistical note. Questions for the record will be due uh, to the nominees by 5 p.m. on Wednesday, November 22nd, which is the day before Thanksgiving. So you'll be uh, given time to uh, celebrate Thanksgiving after 5 p.m. So I suggest everyone plan accordingly. The record will likewise remain open until that time to submit letters and similar materials. Uh, with that and the gratitude of the committee for to the nominees, their families, and friends, this committee stands adjourned.